name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you brought your Bible, uh, go ahead and pull it out, and, or you can use your phone and open up to Exodus chapter 13. Uh, that's where we're going to be working from today. Here at Sedaris, we uh, are actually working through a sermon series in the book of Exodus, and we're really excited to be able to use this opportunity to dive into Good Friday as well, uh, because uh, the death of Jesus is meant to exemplify, fulfill um, the Passover. And so we're going to be working through uh, that together tonight. But before we uh, go into that, I do want to extend an extra warm welcome to those who are tuning in online. I got so many text messages today uh, saying, I'm really looking forward to tuning in online tonight, you know, uh, whether you have, have kids or can't be in person yet. We're so glad that you're here uh, watching the live stream as well. And uh, it's not going to be uh, too much longer. Uh, I, I, I believe, I mean, I'm getting my vaccination next week, and I'm, I'm excited for that. And uh, once we can get back together in full. How sweet is that going to be? So I'm really looking forward to it. Um, but before we uh, dive into the scripture and into the meaning of Good Friday and what the death of Christ, the most significant event that has actually gripped this world means and what it means for us, let's, uh, let's pray to God and ask him to fill this time and make these scriptures clear and to make his love clear for us as well. So, Father God, we come before you as as your people that you have set apart, um, that you have set apart and, and called to, to, to something new in this world through the death of your son and his resurrection, which gives us life. I pray for those of us who are tuning in or either here as well who wouldn't say, you know, I'm not quite there yet, uh, Lord. God, I just pray that you would, through your scriptures, communicate that the cross is for them. That the cross is for all who would like to have it applied to them, Lord. And so as we go through these scriptures, would you make these scriptures breathe for us? Would you make uh, the word of God, Jesus Christ, so present in our midst that we can't help but say that we encountered you tonight, Lord? Lord God, would you just um, proclaim your word magnificently tonight through your, the remembrance of the death of your son, God. I pray that all of us who are watching online and here in person would be encouraged by you, reminded of your love for us, and may we strive uh, to continue to, to live out your desires and, and your will in this world, which is to glorify yourself. So we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been unpacking the... This is a little bit weird right here. I'm going to move this. Sorry, Jeff. Speaking in two microphones. Okay. Um, we, like I said, we've uh, been in the historical account of the Exodus as a church. We've been walking through that. And uh, Good Friday, we actually got up to the Passover last Sunday. So the last two Sundays, we've been unpacking the Passover together as a church, which gives us a unique opportunity to unpack parts of it here in Good Friday as well, which is really, really um, significant because the Passover is the very event that Jesus wanted his death tied to. Like, the Passover is the thing that Jesus said, my death, it's supposed to picture that above anything else in the Old Testament pages. And so we have the really cool opportunity to walk through it uh, even tonight together. There's lots of meat in the Exodus account when it comes to the 10th plague and the Passover. And we, we left a few tidbits for tonight that we're going to unpack together to really understand the death of Christ and everything it means and so let me remind you of a little bit of, of where, we, where we are right now in the story so that you're not jumping into this cold. Um, the 10th plague, it's gone through Egypt at this point. It's killed all the firstborn of, of the Egyptians and of their livestock. 
mass lament has hit the streets of Egypt in the middle of the night when this happened, and Pharaoh says, okay, the Israelites, the Hebrews, you guys can go, get out of here, and they leave. And on their way out, they ask all the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold, and, and in this way, they actually got a lot of gifts, and uh, the scriptures tell us they plundered the Egyptians. They plundered their captors, and they walked in organized fashion right outside, right out of Egypt, because they had uh, killed uh, the, their own lambs and put uh, the blood on their doorposts, on the wood of their doorframe, which allowed them to escape this firstborn death that hit Egypt. And they're going. They're walking out of Egypt, and, and we're celebrating. We, we've been going through 12 chapters, and it's like, finally, they're, they're free. These slaves have been freed from their captors. They've made it. And then something very strange gets dropped into this text. Something very strange that we don't even under, really understand what these topics are that come next. There are two big topics get dropped in to the historical narrative, and they take us somewhere else. They almost feel like commercial breaks. They almost feel like we had this great programming that we were watching. Israel was getting freed from slavery, and then, oh, we have these two commercials that get shoved into the Exodus account. And they're really strange to modern ears. We don't really know how to place them. They're called the consecration of the firstborn, and then who actually gets to participate in the Passover, a bunch of regulations. Okay, so they're, they're kind of strange, and uh, whenever you come into a part of the Bible that's a little bit strange, and you're like, why is this here? It means it's there for a special reason. It's there for a very special reason. And uh, so we're going to unpack what these two strange topics of the consecration of the firstborn and who gets to participate in the Passover, what, that actually, what, what they're actually doing because when we actually see them, we get to see a better picture of the cross. When we actually encounter what these two events that are tied to the Passover, we get a little bit more insight into why Jesus said, this is the day that I want to die. This is the day. Did, did you know that Jesus chose to die on the very first day of Passover? In the gospel accounts as we're reading it, it becomes very clear that Jesus is trying to orchestrate his death, and what we find out is that he wants to do it on this very day, the first day of Passover. And, and there's lots of places we can look at in, in the gospels that kind of point to how Jesus was like, yeah, I want to die on that day in Passover, but my favorite to look at is when he's sitting at the Last Supper with his disciples. He's sitting there, and he looks at Judas, his betrayer, and he says, what you're about to do Go do it quickly. What you're about to do, go do it quickly, Judas. What is he saying? He's saying, hey, I'm trying to die on this day. Stop dragging your feet. And so Judas goes and arranges this betrayal that Dave read to start our service off. Do it quickly. Jesus chose to be killed on the very day that pointed to the Passover day. that was celebrated every year in Israel, pointing back to 1300 1,300 years in, in history, the day the 10th plague hit Egypt. And, and so as we approach Good Friday through this historical account of the Passover and Exodus, uh, we, we find the gospel beautifully on display in these Old Testament passages. There, it's beautifully on display in these very strange topics. It's very counterintuitive, but they're there. And so we're going to roll up our sleeves and we're going to deal with each one of these topics together. It's a little bit different uh, from a Good Friday service that I've done in the past. It's a little less uh, topical. Let's talk about Jesus' death and more. Let's look at Jesus' death through the Passover account that we've been walking through. So that's what we're going to do. First, we're going to start with this 
consecration of the firstborn. And when we see it, 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 it's, it beautifully points to the gospel. All right, so, so God sent the destroyer to kill the firstborn of every household, every household and all the firstborn of even the, the livestock in Egypt, except for the homes that had the, the, the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And, and so there's this mass lament, like I was saying, Pharaoh cast them out of Egypt, and they're walking out, and then the author interrupts the programming to give us this. 13, Exodus chapter 13, verse 1. It says this, um, The Lord spoke to Moses, Consecrate every firstborn male to me, the firstborn from every womb among the Israelites, both man and domestic animal. It is mine. Now, <laughs> this is very strange. It's, it's like, I'm sorry, what, God? You, you were just in this huge process of freeing these people from slavery, and now the first thing we find out is you're going to take back a portion of them to enslave them again? Like, you're taking back all the firstborns and they're yours? How, how are you not just another slave driver? It's really, it's really curious and confusing. Further clarity comes to, comes to us on this topic all the way down in verse 11. It says this, When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, you are to present to the Lord every firstborn male of the womb, all firstborn offspring of the livestock, you own that our males will be the Lord's. You must redeem every firstborn of a donkey with the flock of an animal, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. However, you must redeem every firstborn among your sons. So we have this consecrating of the firstborn, which really boils down to three commandments. Of any small animal, like a sheep or a goat, you have to sacrifice that animal, their firstborn male, at the tabernacle, at the temple. And then uh, to, to redeem firstborn males of larger animals, uh, you don't have to kill those ones, but you actually have to take a sheep and a goat and kill that at the tabernacle or at the temple. And then of uh, the firstborn males of, of your own that you have, you have, to make, you have to buy them back from the Lord. And what we'll find later in the Torah, this price was to be two ounces of silver at the temple or at the tabernacle. Now, very strange why is God staking this claim on Hebrew firstborns? Why is he having them do this in, per, in perpetuity moving forward? The Egyptians are the bad guys, right? They, they were the ones enslaving the Hebrews, who, uh, got, so God punished their firstborn. Why is there a seeming punishment for the firstborn of the Hebrews as well? Think of all these goats and sheep that are going to have to die now. They would, but then we have an answer in verse 14. Why, God? Because in the future, when your, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, by the strength of his hand, the Lord bought us out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of humans and the firstborn of livestock. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord all of the firstborn of the womb that are males, but I redeem all the firstborn of my sons. So let it be a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead, for the Lord brought us out of Egypt by the strength of his hand. So on the surface, it seems like the reason is that Israel needs a reminder of everything that God had done back in Egypt, so, so that it can be passed down from generation to generation. This is what God did. But it's also put next to the narrative that the writer wants to pull this out of the law that we're going to discuss later and plop it down here because they want to remind us of a very crucial, crucial fact of the 10th plague 
that we must not forget, that the Hebrews must not forget, that the writer doesn't want anybody to, to, to forget, that the Hebrew firstborn males would have died too, save the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. What does this tell us? That the Hebrew slaves deserved death just as much as their oppressors. That the Hebrews were just as guilty before God as the Egyptians. This is very interesting. Right here we're saying, there's a big reminder, stop everything, hold up, hold up, hold up. Hebrews are guilty too. That's what this is saying. It's fascinating. Why do they get the special treatment then? Well, it's not because they were inherently good people. It's not because they were innocent people is what this tells us. It's not because they were smarter and more enlightened than the Egyptians. No, they got special treatment because God chose them. But God's choosing them didn't make them any less guilty of ugly sin and ugly rebellion. And so the consecration of the firstborn is put in here to, to remind the Hebrews that they deserved death too. Without the redemption of the lamb and the display of its blood on the wood of their door frames, their firstborn would be dead too. See, it's only natural to read through this Exodus account and read it as the Egyptians as the bad guys and the Israelites as the good guys. But here, there's a stop put in here to remind everybody, everybody's the bad guy. Everybody is found wanting before God. Every human has participated in, in the ugly sin of rebellion to God. That's why it's here. That's why it's here. This practice is inserted into their very culture, moving forward to remind them that they were just as guilty as their slavers. When God sends the destroyer, they need a way to escape, just like the Egyptians did. It tells us that none are innocent in Egypt in God's eyes, that all were sinners guilty of rebellion against him. It tells that to, to live, that, that is to be bought back, you had to have blood, a life sacrificed for yours and that blood put on wood publicly. <clears throat> so we see the 10th plague, it actually isn't just the instrument that God uses to get the Israelites out of Egypt, although it definitely does that. But his intentions go much further, much, much further it's a glimpse of what is to come. You see, in Egypt, what we see is there's just a fraction of God's judgment coming into the world. Just, it's coming into Egypt, into one little land for, for just one type of person, firstborn male sons. Just, and the way to escape it, blood on wood. To prepare all of humanity for one day when God is going to come back into this world and his judgment is going to go throughout the entire world and search for every single person, not just present people, but for those of past. And the question is, how are people going to get through that? Because all are going to fall short. Not even these chosen people, the consecration of the firstborn tells us, could make it through without redemption. None will be found innocent. Each and every person will be found and exposed as a rebellious sinner who has cast off the rule of their life, or the rule of God in their life, because they want to do it their own way. And the only ones who will survive judgment, the ones who will experience it, the ones who will have that judgment pass over them will need to be redeemed by the Lamb. The Lamb of God. His blood on wood. 
That's why we're here tonight. It has to be the right price. We can't just get our own lambs on that day and put it on our doorposts. No, no, a simple lamb blood is too cheap of a price for eternal souls. You see, the, the, the lamb's blood in Egypt was enough to put off the first death for firstborns for a couple decades, but they still died. What comes and threatens all of humanity in the future is a coming second death. See, all of us are going to, uh, we're, we're going to experience the first death. That's coming. There's no way around that. But there's a second death coming for all of humanity that we are in grave danger of experiencing absent the redemption price of the Lamb of God. And that's a sacrifice that has been made by Jesus' beaten and bloodied cross, beaten and bloodied body that was nailed to the cross 2,000 years ago for all rebellious sinners who will make the cross their home. And so that's why we're here today on Good Friday. We're looking to the cross that was needed because we could never work our way back to God on our own. We could never make up the gap that was there. We can never undo the tangled mess that that humanity had gotten into. We need him to act. We need him to choose to act. We need him to redeem us. It's only then can we survive the second death that threatens all of humanity. So, so why this Exodus 13 commercial? Well, per- perpetual redemption of the firstborn was a continual reminder that when God judges, all of humanity comes up short. All of us. And all of us will need to be purchased by the blood of a lamb to be spared. <clears throat> so, the natural, then become, the, the, the natural question then becomes, well, how can Jesus' death purchase me? How, how can I be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb on wood? How, how can I be included in this coming Passover for the second death? And, and that answer comes actually right before in chapter 12, verse 43. <clears throat> verse 43. I'm going to give you a warning. It sounds very strange to modern ears, okay? I got to wrestle with it all week. I felt weird all week about it. But I'm really excited for what's hidden in here, okay? Verse 43, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statue of the Passover. No foreigner may may eat it, but any slave a man has purchased may eat it after you have circumcised him. A temporary resident or hired worker may not eat the Passover. It is to be eaten in one's house or in one house. You may not take any of the meat outside of the house. You may not break any of its bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. If an alien resides among you and, and wants to observe the Lord's Passover, every male in his household must be circumcised, and then he may participate. He will become like a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person may eat it. The same law will apply to both the native and to the alien who resides among you. Now, I have a wife and four daughters, and circumcision is an awkward topic, just in my mind, generally. Uh, maybe it's not for families that have boys. It's just, for me, it's just an awkward topic, generally. And here we see that entrance into the Passover meal, the ticket is circumcision. There's more. Verse 50. Then all the Israelites did this. They did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. What did they do? On that same day, well, when did they do it? They did it on that same day. The Lord brought the Israelites out of the land of Egypt according to their military divisions. 
And so what we have going on here is we have this large-scale circumcision event that happens the afternoon before the Passover. And it's very strange. And these are the things in the Bible that were like, "Uh, that was weird, let's just skip over this and move on. (laughs) Right? Am I right? I mean, if if you're like me, that's what you do. Um, Amen. (laughs) Thank you. Um, It's very strange. This is kind of how, this is the ticket to membership in the community of Israel. What about women, you ask? Well, the Hebrews actually didn't practice female circumcision at all, but, but females, or women were included based on the formal relationships they had with, with uh, their fathers, their brothers, their husbands, uh, for those who were servants, their masters. Um, and now, circumcision, like I said, is strange, and we could spend a lot of time um, conjecturing as to why God chose this artifact to be the ticket. But, but, but notice what the, pre-co- the, the precursor for Passover is not, because this is fascinating. This is a, a truly fascinating piece of the Old Testament Torah, because if you were to read the rest of the Torah, and you were to ask the question, who can participate in the community of Israel? And how can they participate in the community of Israel when they practice their festivals, when when even just being inside the camp and being inside the cities? If you were to ask the question, who's allowed to be there? The answer would be anybody who's ceremonially, ceremonially clean, ritually pure, morally pure. Anybody who's pure can be a part of the community of Israel. Over and over and over again, we're going to see that as we walk through the back half of Exodus but not the Passover event. No, not at all. To have, judgment, to have the judgment of the 10th plague pass over, to, uh, pass over you, to escape the judgment, you don't have to be ceremonially clean at all, ritually pure, uh, morally pure. You don't have to do that at all because it's not what you do that gets you through the judgment. It's, been, it's what's been done to you that gets you through the judgment. That's why circumcision it's something that's done to somebody that gets them through the judgment. It's meant to be something that someone else did to you that indicated something else that's going on. What is that? Well, it's meant to signify that a person was trusting in the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord that came to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and now Moses that was being proclaimed to all of the people. What does that mean? Outward circumcision was meant to typify, to point to inner faith. That's what is going on here. Inner faith. So when the word of the Lord shows up and says, your firstborn will die unless you observe the Passover, and you trust that, there's a physical, and unfortunately for the Hebrews, a very physical way to actually exemplify that faith in order to be a part of the Passover meal. It's what earns the membership to the Passover event. And, and so this is what we have to understand about faith, though. Because we can understand it because of the picture of circumcision. Circumcision is something that's done to someone, and faith is something that is given from God to someone. It's a gift. We, we, we can't conjure it up ourselves. This is what the, the whole um, epistle to, of the Ephesians is about. Ephesians 2. You might even say that faith is something that God does to people. Circumcision is meant to display what God had already done to you so that you might join the community of God's people and experience the blessings that he pours on them, including the Passover. Now, now, now did circumcision save a person? 
Well, well, well no. In, in Romans 4, the Apostle Paul explains that, hey, Abraham was saved. Uh, he was made righteous before God uh, before he was circumcised because he trusted the word of the Lord and followed him. So, so the faith is still the saving event, but the circumcision is the outward display of that inward faith. And God continues to give people faith today. He gives people faith. He continues to empower people to respond to his word by trusting it. But don't worry, when they do, we don't circumcise them. We baptize them. We baptize them. Baptism, it represents a death to one's own desires, similar to the pain of circumcision, and a desire to live for God's glory or for God's desires in this world. We, we, we call it a, a dramatization baptism of repenting and believing the gospel, of this faith that has already taken place in someone's heart. So the, the Old Testament practice of circumcision is replaced with the New Testament practice of baptism. And this is, Paul says this explicitly in Colossians chapter 2 when he calls the circumcision of Christ is what you received when you were baptized. When you go under the water and you experience repentance and you're raised back to newness of life. So the big idea that, that we should walk away from this, the second thing in between the historical narrative is that if you want the redemption price of Jesus' blood, um, of Jesus' blood that, that was on the wood of the cross applied to you so that the second death passes over you, you will need to have faith to respond. You'll need to have faith to respond to his word, not purity. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Because if you trust God's word that says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believed in him will not perish but have eternal life, if you believe in that, if you trust in that word of the Lord, that's the faith needed for salvation. And once that happens, you're ready for baptism. Now, if you're not there yet, uh, if you're here in the room and not here, that, if you're turning on, tuning in online and you're not there yet, that's okay. That's okay. I do have three quick points for you, though, as well. Uh, one, uh, God loves you and sent his firstborn to die so that you could belong to him. So that you could belong to him once again. He died for you not because you were pure, but because you weren't pure. And he wanted to take your impurities on himself on the cross so that when he does return in full, you might live. Now, if you, the second thing is if you feel panicked because you don't have faith, don't worry. I, I, I love walking with people through the process when they first start coming to Christianity and they start understanding it more and more and then they realize that, oh man, I need faith in order to participate here. And, and there's a, a brief moment of panic that always hits them. And I, I love having this conversation. It's one of my favorite conversations to have, honestly, when people get to this point. They're like, oh shoot, I need faith for this to work. And I'm like, yes, you do. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You have to be born again. Oh, that's not something I can do myself. Yes, you're going to need to rely on God to do that for you. And then I tell them this. Jesus said this, though. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. So if you're panicked, if you're like, I'm on the outside looking into Passover. They're in there eating, eating the lamb. They have the blood of Christ over them. And I want to be in there, but I don't know how to do that because I, I don't know if I believe all of this. All you have to do is ask. Ask God to give you 
faith. Jesus said he freely gives it. Third thing, you don't have to make up your mind right now. You, you don't have to say, yep, I'm in, I have faith, and you don't even have to ask for faith. You can do what many Egyptians did with the Israelites as they left Egypt. Many Egyptians, because they left in a mixed multitude, would have experienced a firstborn dying in their own house. And that would have been the thing that would convince them, you know what, maybe I should give the Hebrews a shot, and maybe I'm going to walk out of here with them. And then what we, what's beautiful about the Hebrew law is that the law is written so that those outsiders could walk along Israel, alongside Israel, and participate with them in the creation of the nation of Israel. Now, we're on, now they were still viewing from a distance in some sense, but if they didn't put their faith in the word of God and show that through circumcision, they still couldn't participate in that yearly Passover celebration. But they were more than welcome, more than welcome to walk alongside the people of God, and to see the blessings that the people of God would experience from God. They'd have to put, they wouldn't be able to experience those blessings for themselves until they put faith in God, but they could walk alongside as long as they wanted. Right, and, and so through these ancillary, these seeming ancillary topics of Passover, we learn that everyone needs to be bought with the blood Everyone needs to be bought with blood on wood because of their sin, and everyone needs God to give them the faith to trust in this reality. The Gospel of John uh, was probably one of my favorite, well, if you say one of the Gospels, one of your favorite Gospels, there's only four. The Gospel of John is, is top two for me, okay? Top two, top two, because it was written after the other three, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and, and he was writing so much later, and he was like, you know what, all of you guys, you have all the, the events you need to hear about Jesus. What I'm going to do as I pen my gospel is I'm going to write the theological significance behind these events. I'm not going to try to add all this new stuff of what happened in Jesus' life. I'm going to tell you what the theological richness is in Jesus' life. And he told us this. He told us that Jesus was the Word of God in the flesh. He told us that this word of God was the firstborn son of God. He told us that the firstborn son of God came and lived an incredible and a glorious life. He said that the firstborn son of God was the lamb of God. He said that the lamb of God was rejected by humans, and the lamb of God was tortured and killed by humans, and the lamb of God was bloodied and hung on a cross of wood to all, for all to see by humans, just like the lambs 1,300 years prior were killed by humans. 